Welcome to the City on a Hill Church Brighton podcast. We exist to help people love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. We're glad you're here, and thanks for listening. More information on the life and mission of City on a Hill Church can be found at coabrighton.org. That's C-O-A-H-Brighton.org. Well, good morning. Uh, Hopefully that video was helpful for you. Uh, If you've not seen that uh, or something like that, that's by The Bible Project. Uh, There's a pastor and professor, his name is Tim Mackey. Him and some of his team worked together to put that uh, video for us. And I think that's super helpful as we are in our series of teaching in the book of Genesis. We started last week, so if you're a guest, uh, you're not missing out on anything this week. Uh, But Genesis is all of the stories about beginnings. They're all origin stories. And today's origin story that we're going to walk through is creation. It's creation. And what's interesting about creation here is that a lot of questions are going to pop up today. Like, how old is the earth? Is it a young earth? Is it an old earth? And what do we do with evolution? Like, just a quick poll, by the way. Like, I'm just curious where you guys are. Uh, Feel free to maybe not participate if you don't want to, but raise your hand if you maybe think that the earth is like a young earth. It's like between 6,000 and 10,000 years. If you want to raise your hand. So I think I might believe that, okay? And raise your hand if you think the earth is maybe old earth. It's about like 4.5 million years if you want to raise your hand. Now raise your hand if you're just afraid to raise your hand and you're just not sure, and this is the moment to raise the hand. Yeah, absolutely. So we're all sort of like, man, how do we navigate? In the beginning, God created, and was it actually these six days? Or how do we interpret all of this? And I want to let you know that if you're like super anxious about like, oh gosh, what are we getting into today? Uh, This is not a matter that we fight about at our church Uh, Because I'm hoping that you see today that there is a purpose and an order to what Genesis 1 unpacks for us. And you get to see, maybe there's a few possible positions that you and I can take biblically about this text together. And so guys, I'm not going to solve every mystery here, uh, but I do want to give you what's the point of Genesis 1. And I want to give that to you just right off the bat, guys. Uh, the, The very point of this is not how God created It is why. If you're choosing to read Genesis 1 like a car manual and you want all the details of how it works, you're not reading it the right way. Now, if you and I uh, need to understand, you and I read literature different ways, right? If you and I went to a comic book and you're like, this really happened in American history? The Civil War with Captain America and Iron Man? That's terrible. You, you would not do that with that literature. Just like the car manual. If you're like, this is a terrible poem. Why would someone write about engines this way? It's not a poem. Again, if you went to a math book and you're like, ooh, this is not a great sci-fi story. It's because that's not how any of those books were written. And when we come to Genesis, we've got to understand that it is a literary book. And so there is going to be poetry in the book. There is science in the book. And it is history. But we've got to understand, how do we read this? And are we to read Genesis 1 like it's supposed to be historical science? Or as we read this, how do we interpret this? And so we're going to unpack a few of these things, but I want to dial back a little bit and let's just start what was created. So again, I want you to see why things were created today. And then I want you to to really, at the very end of today, I want you to have like an all-in-wonder for who God is. It's not the how— he created, but it's why. 
So I want you to have an all in wonder of what God created. And I want you and I as Christians, if you're a Christian in the room, I want you to be a witness to the world. I want you to be logical. I want your faith to make sense. The scriptures tells us that if someone asks us about our faith, we should have a good reason for the things that we believe. So I want you to have all in wonder. I want you to have a, a witness in the world about what we believe. And then this is the hardest one, whether you're Christian or non-Christian, it's hard. I want you to welcome God's rule and reign in your life. And what God's doing in Genesis 1 is he's telling you who the ruler is, who the creator is, who's the God. And he's inviting and calling us to submit to his rule and reign. So again, let's, let's unpack here. What do we first see in the days of creation? Uh, guys in the back, I've got a quick little graphic that I think can help us. I want you to see that there's days of forming and there's days of filling. And so what we see in the first day is that God created the light and he separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day and he called the darkness night. Day two, God created an expanse to separate the waters and he called it the sky. Day three, God created the dry ground and he gathered the waters and he called the dry ground land and he called the waters seas. On the third day, God also created vegetation with plants and trees and God saw and said that it was good. On the fourth day, God created the sun and the moon and the stars to give light to the earth and to govern and separate the day and the night. These would also serve guys, us as markers of seasons and days and years. So God saw it and called it good. Day five, God created every living creature of the seas and every winged bird and he blessed them. And he told them to multiply and fill the waters and the sky with life. And then God... On day six, God created animals to fill the earth. On day six, God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, in his own image to commune with them. He blessed them and gave them every creature of the whole earth to rule over, care for, and to cultivate according to his will. And then day seven, God had finished his work of creation and he rested on the seventh day, blessing it and making it holy. That's a summary of what you just heard twice today. Kyle read it and the video went over it. So what I want to do today is get a little bit into some of the challenges of this text. That's why I had it taught twice, one through video, one through reading. And I want to get into some of the particulars today because I think this story is really confusing and what it does for many of our friends and neighbors, they start reading the first chapter of the Bible and they throw it out sometimes because of the way we talk about it. And there's lots of confusion about what our stance is and what's real. And so again, I'm not going to solve all the things, but what did... What really happened in these six days? Is the author making a scientific claim here? A historical claim? Is it a poetic rendering? How do we understand all of this? And my goal is that you would see sort of how faith and science are able to line up. Now, here's what we're going to talk about this, okay? Uh, there is, guys, we may not be understood by everyone, and I totally understand that, but there is more ambiguity in the claims of science that some scientists want to recognize and for Christians, there is more ambiguity in the interpretation of these scriptures than some Christians want to recognize as well. We all sort of agree on that? Josh doesn't agree? I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. We're good buds. I don't do that. If you need to use restroom, it's okay. Him and I go way back. It's an okay thing. He's not mad. You're not mad. You're okay. <laughs> I always love to pick on you, bud. So we want to come at this passage and we want to recognize that you and I guys as Christians can be unified. And if we differ on the age of the earth, that doesn't mean that you're cheating out what the Bible has to say or that you're being unfaithful to God or the scriptures. If we differ here, there can be some unity and charity about how we look at this. Okay, so here's the first theory uh, about these 
creation days. How do we unpack this? I want to give you just a few theories today. I want to pop this on the screen. And you might fall into this. And again, why I'm sharing with this, you're, you might not come away and be like, man, I don't really know and I don't really care. But if you and I are going to have a faithful witness in the world, I want to equip Christians in a place that's as wonderful as Boston, as people are thinking deeply about these items. I want you to be able to have a gracious and an intelligent conversation about creation. Because this is the place that many people get hung up, don't they? And so here's the first thing. Some may believe in a young earth creationism. This is like a literal six-day creation theory. This is someone who sees each day as a literal 24 hours. And tons of people hold this claim. And there is nothing wrong with this claim. This theory bases its evidence on the way that the Bible uses the Hebrew language. For example, everywhere else in the Bible, when you see the word day and then attached to it is the word morning or evening or a month or a year, anytime you say the word day, which is yam in Hebrew, and you attach anything onto it, anywhere else in scripture, they're intending, the author's intending you to know this is a real 24-hour period. This is a real day. It's not poetic. It's not a metaphor. It's real everywhere else in scripture. And so when you take that thought and you back it up to Genesis 1 and you see that it was Yom, the first day, and it has a first next to it and also has an evening and a morning, first day, everywhere else in the Bible, it does that. It seems it's a literal 24-hour day. So it makes sense if we're gonna be literary specialists for a moment, that this is maybe one way we can apply it. But often, as you may know, the critique to this is that the earth seems to be older than just the 6,000 to 10,000 years that maybe Christians claim it to be. Science seems to indicate possibly that the earth is like 4.5 billion years old. And they use some uh, radiometric dating and some studies to look at the rocks and see how old the earth is. So that's the first stance. And if you had that stance, it makes sense. It makes sense if that's how you're interpreting literature. That's the first one. The second one is the mature creation theory. I think this is fascinating uh, because it looks at Genesis 1 as well as a 24-hour day, but it looks at it that God created the world to look older than it really was. So for example, you have Adam and Eve, right? And when God created them, they took the form of fully mature adults, right? Right? It didn't say God created Adam and Eve, and then Adam was on the ground whining for a bottle, right? Didn't, didn't talk about those years. It looked like Adam was one day old in terms of the time he was made, but then he had a form that was fully mature. And so maybe the earth is the same way. It was created, but yet the force it took to create that sped up the aging process of rocks and sediments and how they formed together. So it maybe look old, but in fact is young. That's a mature creation theory. And we get that idea again from Adam and Eve being one day old, but looking different. And again, the biggest critique here is that some may say, is well, God deceiving us then? Like, why would God not just like create it and have it look to be the same? Why is there any confusion there? Wouldn't it help God on his end if we kind of just saw age and look and it just kind of matched together? Some of the critique people would say. And again, my goal is not to solve all this for you. I just want you to show that, guys, there can genuinely be some unity about this, and we can be thoughtful about how we look at this passage. All right, here's the third theory. 
is this relevatory day theory. And this theory uh, says that the six days in Genesis 1 was not God creating in six days, but it was Moses learning from God about creation. So on day one, God would teach Moses this, and at the very end of Moses' day, he would finish writing about it. And then on day two, they would have another conversation. And day three, they would have another conversation. So it was over six days Moses is writing from his interaction. It's like for some of you guys, you go on a date on Monday, and then you might go on a different date on Tuesday, and a different date on Wednesday, and you're recording what happened. And again, I'm not mocking you if you're dating on every day. I'm not mocking you of that. But I'm just showing you that it's Moses' point of view that on day one, I learned this. Day two, I learned this. Day three, I learned this. Now, this theory has a critique as well. Uh, nowhere in Genesis do we see evidence that these are like God revealing it to Moses in incremental Days And in fact, why would Moses leave the seventh day open? He didn't say this is morning and evening, the end of the seventh day. He didn't say that. The seventh day is actually left open. So that's an interesting way. Did he just forget? Did he get busy? Like what happened here? Maybe that shows that there's maybe a little bit more literary or poetic rendering to this possibly. Uh, the fourth theory is maybe a theory that I hold closer to me. And that doesn't mean you need to hold it closer. Uh, to you, but we want to think thoughtfully. And so out of my study and my time, this is where I personally came up with, and it's okay if you don't land here. It's called the gap theory, the gap theory, not where you shop for clothes back in the nineties, or maybe you do now, but it's the gap theory about time. That was a terrible joke. I'm so sorry. I'm a dad of a five-year-old and three-year-old and this is my life now. The gap theory, <laughs> the gap theory suggests that there's a gap in time between Genesis 1 verse 2 and Genesis 1 verse 3. So here's what I mean. The Bible says, In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Gap. For millions and 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 billions and billions of years. Verse 3, Then God said. So plus... This theory allows us to understand maybe when did the angels fall? Remember, there was a rebellion in heaven and there was angels who were created and they rebelled and fell away from God. And we may understand the stars falling and we learn in Genesis or in Revelation that that maybe was one third of the angels that fell. And it allows us to maybe have a time for when that happened, was in this gap. Now, again, I'll critique my own stance here or my own potential stance. Is it the grammatical structure of verse two and three? doesn't seem to indicate a gap. It's not how you read things. It doesn't tell us there's a gap. It doesn't tell us that. It seems a continuation. So I'll critique my own possible theory for a moment that I think that's maybe not fully accurate of a theory because it seems that there's a continual thing happening in verse one, two, and three. But if you hold that position, I totally understand why you hold it. Theory five, the local creation theory. Uh, it says that the local creation theory in Genesis 1 is indeed, verse 1, is about a universal creation. In the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth, so that's a universal creation. But then most of Genesis 1 talks about God working in a small area of the earth. So God creates this garden over here, and in the garden, he has these things pop up. So maybe in this local creation theory, it's not talking about the whole world at that point because verse one does that, but then the rest of it talks about this small sort of garden that's happening. And again, the critique is that there's no real evidence of that really being the case, limiting it to a small area. 
You guys hang with me, okay? We've only got a few left, and then we'll kind of get to more of the purpose of it. Jenna's like, this is a lot, bro. This is a lot. All right, six, the intermittent day theory. Uh, This theory says that each of the days were 24 hours long, but that they were possibly large time gaps between each actual day. And so God, on the first day, creates something, then there's a huge gap of time, and then God creates something too. And then it goes on a long gap of time. Then day three, he creates. So intermittent is basically saying there's an intermittent time gap. Day one of creation, millions of years. Day two, millions of years. Day three. And so it stretches out the time a little bit. Now, again, a critique is that when you look at Exodus chapter 20, and we're learning about the commands of Scripture, and we're learning about God giving us a Sabbath day of rest, it doesn't make a lot of sense in this theory because it seems that it's a sequential day of creation, and there's a sequential days of work, and on that seventh day of work, there should be rest. So that theory doesn't exactly click when it comes to intermittent theory. Day-to-age theory. Number seven, the day-to-age theory suggests that six days of creation were not a literal 24-hour day, but each day symbolizes an era or a long span of time. And this comes from the fact that the, also that word yom can also designate a time period other than a 24-hour day. It can be an era or a, a season of time. And so, for example, we see in 2 Peter 3, 8, it says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years. And a thousand years is as one day. And so maybe this explains it for us. When it says yom, it's talking about a time period, an era, possibly. Um, for sake of time, we're going to speed up through these last, last two here. We've got sort of the uh, analogy-based one. And so it's really sort of pointing us to a work and rest day. And so God is saying, let me teach you about work and rest. And so day one, day two, day three, day four, and then you're going to rest on a Sabbath. And so the whole point of this is really to talk about Sabbath, is to talk about resting and how you should have a rhythm of work and rest and then Sabbath to the Lord. That's the theory. Now, here's the last one that I want to focus on um, because I think that this theory sort of can encapsulate the purpose of what all the other theories are trying to get across. And this theory is called the framework theory. And so if you guys can put that picture uh, back up on the screen here. And so this is what the framework theory does is on the first three days, God is forming spaces, spaces or kingdoms. And day four and six, he's filling those kingdoms with their rulers So you have light and dark, and so God puts on day four the sun and the moon and the stars. So there's a forming space, and there's rulers over that space. Day two, there's the creation of a sea and a sky. And day five, God is putting the rulers in that space, the fish and the birds. Day three, God creates the space of dry land and vegetation. And then God creates the rulers of that, land animals, and then he puts humans. And so what we're learning is maybe there's sort of an order here. There's a, there's a purpose. There's a space or a kingdom. And then God is using a ruler or a king to come and rule over that space. And what this helps us to do, this helps us to understand when we get to Genesis chapter two, when it talks about how mankind was in this garden, but yet no grass or no trees or no plants were formed yet. And that seems like a 
confusing contradiction, right? Didn't we learn that plants happen first and then humans? And then Genesis 2, it talks about how humans happen first when no plants or vegetation had arisen. So either the Bible has a potential contradiction or there's another way to explain it, or maybe there is truth, maybe there is science, maybe there's history, but there's also poetry happening. And I think it's what's interesting about this is that this sort of takes the theme of the rest of Scripture and moves it forward. That there is a king who rules over all spaces. And that's why God tells us on day seven to rest under this king, to acknowledge that he is the ruler and the reign of all things. So I think it's helpful for us to really have that idea. I know maybe on all those theories, you might be like, bro, that's just a lot for a Sunday morning. I just came to like hear a couple of Bible verses, be prayed over and like sing some songs. But again, I want us to think thoughtfully about these positions. So maybe where do you land on these positions? Where do you find yourself here? And so as we not exactly wrap up, but get to the purpose of what we're unpacking, I want to take the the thoughts that's behind this theory and everything else to talk to you about God being the ruler over all spaces. So I gave you some theory. Now let me give you some practice. Let me give you some application of what we do here. You guys remember how we started? This is a literary book, right? It has different literary elements. And so is this book initially written to you and me? No, not initially, right? We're not the initial crowd. Well, who was the initial crowd this book was written to? It was written to people who did not believe in one supreme God. During that time in Mesopotamian world, they were worshiping the sun God and the moon God and the star God and the animal God. So when Moses writes this book, he's saying, no, 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 no. There's a God who created that sun and that moon and those stars and that animal and you. And so when we're learning from this, we're learning that this book was written to show who the actual real king of creation is. We're learning from this that it's not really about the how of creation, it's the why of creation. And so this passage is really a polemic against all idolatry is what's happening here. We're learning that yes, the world is full of rulers, but there's one supreme ruler And eventually, if you don't take your life and follow this ultimate ruler, you will be ruled by something else in creation. You'll chase after created things rather than the creator. And so God is telling through Moses, don't follow after other creations. Don't worship money. Don't worship education. Don't worship family or kids. I'm the ruler over all of them. I find It's purpose and meaning and God and nothing else in creation. So when God's writing this through Moses, we're learning really that the purpose is not how and what day and how long, but that God is supreme ruler and life is ordered for us to rest on the seventh day according to his will. We're to rest by following his plan for creation, by trusting he has a purpose and order and that satisfaction is found in him. And that's why, that's why God is writing to Moses. He's writing to the Mesopotamian people. He's writing to the Jewish people to show them that he's the ultimate God. Now, Christians, listen, you've, some of you have read the rest of the Old Testament. What's the major problem that happens with the Jewish people? They start worshiping what? Everything else. They're like, let's melt our jewelry and let's make a calf. 
and let's worship the calf and call it our creator. And you and I are like, man, that's dumb, but what do you and I do all the time? We take created things and we sacrifice to it. I don't care about my kids. I'm going to go and do this more, even though I won't see them. Or I don't care about my health. I'm just going to eat this and I'm not going to exercise. I'm not going to do this. And we begin to sacrifice our time and our our bodies and our, our mental health for what? For created things. And so what I think what's happening in Genesis 1 is God saying, guys, I'm going to start out showing you who the ruler is and how things should be ordered. And on the seventh day, you should rest as creation in a metaphorical sense, but also in a physical sense, but a metaphorical sense, you should rest and follow my ways. You should not work for purpose, work for significance, work for love, rest because I'm the one who gives it. Does that make sense? That's really what's happening for us here. Guys, in fact, Pastor Tim Keller, one of my uh, favorite pastors, and I studied a lot of church planting through his books and his, his preaching, and he really unpacks this idea for us. And he talks about when you contrast chapter one with chapter three of Genesis, you see something very interesting. You see that humanity is created last before God sits down to rest. In other words, the sun and the moon are ruling over their realms, but God is ruling over them. Yes, we see the birds and the sea creatures, the animals are ruling over the skies and the seas, but God is ruling over them. And they have submitted themselves on the seventh day to rest. And you and I are called also to rest in his purposes and his ways. God says uh, later on in the scriptures in verse 28, let us make mankind in our own image. So God creates man in his image. And verse 28 says again, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish. Rule over the birds. Rule over creation. Be the ruler over rulers, humans. And what have we done? For a Christian, we know that we try to rule over God himself. And so again, he reminds us with day seven, you're just created. And you're created for a purpose and an identity and a worth that only comes from me. And if you seek to work for that identity and that value, and we're trying to climb that educational ladder and get that PhD, finish that program, because then I could go on to do this, and then I significant. We're not understanding the order of why God's giving us this first chapter. As a ruler of creation and being sort of a supreme creature in creation, we're to submit to God's rule and reign. So here's the point. Here's the point. If God is first in your life, if God is the source of your security and of your wisdom, of your power, then nothing else will enslave you. You won't care what people think. It won't be that awful if you're not dating someone, if you're not married when you want to be. It won't be the end of the world if your career hasn't taken off or if you got fired from your job. It won't be the end of the world if you don't have a lot of money and a lot of success. But listen, if God is not number one in your life and he's not the source of your value, your worth, your security, your power, then something else in creation will be. And it will be romance. It will be family. It'll be career or it'll be money for you. And you will often begin to hate yourself thinking it's your fault that you won't have it and begin to turn in on yourself with anxiety, with depression, with anger, with sadness. Your esteem will be in the trash. You feel like life is meaningless. It'll be in ashes. 
because we were never created to find that value in creation. So what does this mean? That means that you and I in creation have gone down on the first day. We're not living in the order that we belong in. And my friends, you and I belong in the seventh day. Whereas a Christian, you're resting in what God has told you that you are, that you are made in his image with inherent value. So you don't need to have some significant person in your life love you for you to feel value. You don't have to have all the money or possessions or have the house in order you for to feel secure about the future. On the seventh day as creation, we can learn, we can rest. God's sovereign, God is good, it's in control. And you and I belong to the seventh day where we don't work for those things. So guys, Genesis 1 is really about God revealing to us his existence, his glory, his kingship. And then you and I live joyfully and obediently to him as our king. And so when we do that, we can't be enslaved by anything else. And this is the type of life that God has created creation to be for us to live and walk in that way. So does that make sense, guys? Do you understand that that's what the narrative is really about? So although I gave you nine theories and I think we should be thoughtful and don't get caught up in all of the how, because God is showing you that there's an order and there's a purpose. That when you look at creation and you boil all the way down, you realize that God is the ultimate king over all the kingdoms of all the spaces. And when we live according to his ways, you find freedom and you're not caught up in pornography or chasing money or dating relationships or stuff. You're free from that. So God's showing you in the first chapter, what is creation to do? It's to rest in him. It's to rest in him. And when we do that, we find this joy in the king. We find peace. We find harmony. We find life. And my friends, this is indeed why Jesus had to come to earth, right? Because we as creation are broken. And we have sought after creation to fulfill us. And so Jesus in love has come to recreate humanity in our hearts. He's come to give us a new kingdom inside of us where he rules and reigns. And then if you're a Christian, you know that one day God will create a new heavens and a new earth where sin will not and does not exist. And it's in that place that you and I can fully rest from the presence of sin. And so as a Christian, we know that Jesus has come to restore all that's broken in creation. And we see that again in Genesis 1, that there is this king that tells us to rest and to rest in him on the seventh day. And this is Jesus. Jesus offers a rest in him. And guys, listen, Boston's a busy city, is it not? High schedules, always busy. We're always striving for something. And I'm sure you've felt that when you're trying to calendar something with your friends or the neighbor or someone in your life. It's hard to calendar something because of how busy it is. And we're all striving for something or to be someone. And we learn that Jesus is inviting us as creation on the seventh day to rest, to see that through him, he ushers forgiveness of sin. He offers freedom from this life of chasing. And he gives you a path of flourishing, a new way to live for his glory. And so when Jesus came, he is showing us this new way of life, a new way to live where satisfaction, belonging comes only from him. And so my friends, when we look at creation, we can look that we are ordered to be under the creator. 
And so my friends, as we close, I want to give you one last thing to just chew on. One last thing. God is either your master or he's ruling and reigning in a benevolent way or something else is mastering you. And the reason how you could know what's mastering you is by your emotions and how you live your day. Are you stressed? Are you anxious? There's something else that's your master because God's a God of peace and order and care. And so if we're feeling stressed and anxious, there's some other master we're serving with our time and our effort and we're running after. And so maybe we're realizing as creation, we're not to rule over everything, but we're to be ruled over. There's a benevolent king that has a path for you in a way. My friends, if we're feeling stress or anger or frustration or tiredness all the time, you're being mastered by something. And we're learning as creation that the only way to live is to be under a benevolent ruler, a loving God who sees you and cares for you and can give you rest. Let's take a moment. Let's pray together. 